Hello and welcome to episode 3 of our podcast Whoa Buddy Whoa Buddy Whoa Buddy uh, <laughs> I'm here with the buddy uh, What's up buddy? Not much uh, How are you? I'm good man I'm good um, You know I've uh, recently moved now back from, from Paris uh, to, to home which is Mumbai uh, mm-hmm. Been a little exhausting I guess the whole uh, travel but it's it's a little bit of a relief it's nice uh though currently as we're recording this episode i am holed up in a in a hotel room under quarantine for a week um nice. which is going to be very unique circumstances i doubt i will ever record an episode under these specific circumstances <laughs> yeah but uh cool well i it's should worth mentioning yeah uh, i'm going to get into the housekeeping uh stuff uh the first thing is that i th- uh it's a correction i had said that the dave chappelle half hour uh special which was on netflix's youtube channel was titled 826 but it's actually 846 uh that's just okay. a minor correction and the other thing was um in retrospect we realized later that um sakitan's uh, song recommendation at the end of last episode which is no name song 33 uh was part of this whole sort of back and forth with j cole's uh snow on the bluff and uh his old take on her tweets and her response to that etc and that actually that whole discussion uh that we were having about um responsibility having a platform and what artists and people who in, in uh in a who are celebrities and that have a public forum where they can speak to people uh what the responsibility is in the context of the pandemic or black lives matter uh that the whole discussion that was going on between no name and j cole was was partly around those issues so that kind of ties in together with that in a nice way um so yeah those are just the general uh things that i wanted to get out there before we get started um so yeah what's on your mind buddy uh yeah well a little before i get right into it I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. It's uh, raining pretty heavily where I am, so there might be a few thunderstorm noises in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no. So one of the things that I was thinking about, um, especially because you just moved to India and you've had, you've been moving around quite a bit, um, as well as you've traveled a bunch, and so have I. Um, and we've taken a lot of trips with our parents, and um, in a lot of ways, traveling has also been kind of this informal education for us because of how regular um, it has been in our lives um, and how much we've learned in such different ways. Um, And so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I'll frame it as a question, um, but interpret it as more open-ended, is what kind, what is the size of a city um, that you like, that you would want to live in? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I've thought about this a lot because I've really lived in three places that I have enough memory of and experience with that I can I can say because I mean we lived in Pune for a while but my memory of Pune as a city and experience of going around it and experiencing it as a city is very limited um, because I was so young back then so for me the three cities that I would be able to compare or rather now four are Mumbai, um, Paris um Glasgow and Loav so uh Mumbai is the city where I lived most of my life Loav was the city I did the first two years of my 
undergraduate studies, Glasgow I did a year abroad, and Paris is where I came back to do my master's. The The general uh, sort of uh, thought that I came to after contemplating this question that you've just posed to me was, I liked Glasgow the most. Part of it yeah. was that I liked Glasgow as a city itself, but part of it was the element of its size and it that it wasn't too big. So I think Glasgow is probably uh, 300,000, 400,000 people uh, around uh-huh. that size. What I like about it is that it's big enough that you have venues for music. There's a lot of venues for live music. There are places where you can watch uh, movies and cinema. So there are avenues for art and for experience. Uh, this is in contrast to Loave, where those were relatively limited. And even if they were, perhaps I didn't explore them as much because of uh, the sort of academic uh, focus and stress that I was under in my two years there. But in general, Loab was a much tinier city and it was a lot less exposed in terms of how much um, culture and experiences you could access in that city. Because I think Loab is about 150,000 people, a lot smaller. It's about half the size of Glasgow. Oh, wow. Um, So I like Glasgow a lot more. Paris and Mumbai are very similar because they're very large metropolitan cities, melting pots Mm -hmm. in a way, uh, you know, because they have people from all walks of life and from different places. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, and I visited New York and it sort of connects in that same loop where you have great public transportation systems. So you can travel across quite long distances with relative efficiency. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two, there is a huge variety of choice in terms of experiences. So much so to the point where you're even spoiled for choice and you're confused of what to do with your evenings. Yeah. The downside, however, to a city that's this big is that one, there's just too many people and you can often feel like you are a cog in the machine and you're just kind of lost in the crowd. You don't feel like you can have an identity attached to the city unless, like with Mumbai, you've lived here for over eight or nine years. With Paris, I think that's really, really difficult. And you feel like part of it, yeah. To, to become part of the fabric of the city, it's very, very difficult. With Glasgow, I didn't feel mm-hmm. that way. Um, and I think uh, the final element is just how expensive it is to live in a city that's as big as New York or Mumbai or Paris, especially as someone who's in their 20s and is kind of between student and trying to uh, you know, earn a living on their own and stuff like that. Glasgow, on the other hand, was a, was a, was a university town on the one hand, and a very sort of indie hipster kind of town at the same time because there was a lot of you know vegan restaurants underground bars and clubs and stuff so it had a very um a very homegrown vibe and the youth of the city was obviously uh you know very vibrant youth culture because the university was there there are multiple universities actually yeah so so, right. so that's my answer to your question. Um, Glasgow, the yeah. size and the, the culture ways, around it. In some ways, that sounds a little bit like Pune as well. Um, mm-hmm. In that Pune is this... Uh, Pune, for those who don't know, is a city that's probably four four hours-ish away from Mumbai. Um, oh, no. Less, probably. It's only about two hours. Less? Yeah, two hours. By two. Okay, yeah. And so, I, I mean, I was born there, actually. Fun fact. Um... And when we grew up there, it was way smaller than it is now. Um, but in a lot of ways, it was kind of a, it used to be a cantonment for the army. And um, and now it's a pretty heavy uh, university 
constituent town um, yeah. and so the glasgow is kind of reminding me of some of those things it is it is uh, and i think pune is also i mean aside from being a university town it also has a lot of the young working professional uh, group of people i think because it also became like an it uh, hub kind of a city uh, not mm-hmm. to the extent of bangalore but you know in a similar sense um so yeah there's a lot of young people who are students and young working people as well uh, mm-hmm. and it's not that big of a town you can tr- it's you know the whole radius of the city i think is probably within 13 14 kilometers at most yeah a, a lot of the reason that i kind of came up with this question was in the beginning of this year in january i went on a week long um, trip with the latin american ensemble um and i play bass on the ensemble and so we took a we did a couple of concerts in this town called merida which is um, in mexico in the state of yucatan um and we kind of got to experience a little bit of what living in the city was like we weren't entirely tourists because we were with somebody our professor grew up there um and so he took us to kind of the local spots and he took and he showed us a lot of the places that you wouldn't i think ordinarily see um alongside doing some of the more touristy things which was an experience unlike many of the other experiences i've had for a week in some place mm-hmm. um and so i remember answering the question when a lot of people would ask me how was the trip i kept kind of in my head it was always like I, that's a place that i would live and i was i was yeah. starting to think about why that was and it kind of sits perfectly um or somewhere actually in the spectrum in between mumbai and grenal which is a huge spectrum right mumbai is i think ranks among the 10 most populous cities in the world um and Definitely. yeah and grenal is a town of 5000 6000 people something like that that's a huge um, huge uh, sort of difference and change for someone who's used to living in such a bustling city <laughs> yeah exactly and i i mean most people ask me if i was nervous coming to grenal um for college and the i think the issue was i knew nothing about it um before i came here so i wasn't even if i was prepared or if i was aware i would have been nervous um but i don't i, I wasn't so i just came here and kind of dove in in a lot of ways try to replicate a lot of the activity that i um tend to experience when i'm in the city in some ways but there's still so many things that are lacking um when there isn't a college population here um, yeah and that well, kind the, of is the a... the thing is that so glasgow if you were to compare it to grenell um you know there's a couple of different universities and they're very old universities but it's also mm. it's the the campus of the university of glasgow which is where i had my year of exchange is bang in the middle of a city uh whereas you know grenell it's it there is nothing urban about the location of where it is yeah it's completely rural it's in rural iowa yeah uh, and i mean it's one of those cases where the existence of the college and the kind of financial and you know just general uh, big presence that it has versus the size of the town it just ends up defining the town in itself mm-hmm. um and in some ways it's kind of detrimental to the town's own identity um because kind of driving into the town of grenell you'll see boards saying welcome grenell college this way welcome to grenell college even before you've entered the campus premises and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff so it's very 
um there there is that problem i think that's part of it but also there isn't really that much to do for someone who's from a city like mumbai right mm-hmm. there are no uh, open mics in town um that i know of at least there is, there are three pubs but i'm not of age you know there's very little scope for uh, someone my age to really be um active outside the college campus on the other hand mumbai obviously for me and for you i know that i mean there there's something there for everyone really um in a lot of ways and we would we would go and watch concerts and we would go to open mics and um stand up shows and that kind of stuff um or just generally that you know that the city is alive when you walk around um but in a lot of ways i've learned to um kind of enjoy the tranquil at grenell mm-hmm. um because there there is definitely i think some magic to how beautiful the sky can be at night and how quiet and lovely a walk can be in a neighborhood like this um but still i think a city um for me at least in this stage of life i would prefer somewhere that is similar to glasgow um funnily enough where uh, in terms of merida was kind of like that as well um in that it was very alive you could tell that it's alive when you walk the streets but it wasn't huge you know it wasn't uh, at it wasn't at a scale that is hard to understand or comprehend as somebody who's not from there yeah i i mean i think so there are there are pros and cons to being on i think uh, a, t- a town like grenell or even for me in lohav where all you really have mm-hmm. is the community and the creative opportunities that campus life can offer yeah. with whatever infrastructure the university itself has you rely very little on the city as a whole uh mm-hmm. but i wonder and so there is obviously there's a benefit to that because you build a stronger community uh because you know compared to uh, loav in glasgow not only was the university much bigger but that was part of the reason but one of the reasons that i found myself not integrating with the student community was because the city was big enough for me to find things to do outside of campus life altogether yeah. um mm-hmm. and so you can detach yourself from the university's community and activities if you have a city where you can explore and do things uh independently mm-hmm. and this is something that i wonder uh whether you've thought about and it's something that i definitely sort of thought about when i was in loab but i realized it was different for you regardless of uh, you know the fact that i had not much of a, a a social and community life outside of the people on my campus and love it still was a city what this meant was that i still had to live in an apartment do my groceries and right. live as an adult alone and independently but mm-hmm. i do you feel sometimes that the campus bubble protects you to the extent that it can stunt your your growth into adulthood and independence when you do leave the city and find the opportunity to go to a much bigger place does that do people often say because i know you you must talk to your alum alums and stuff about yeah. what is that transition like and is it like a huge reverse culture shock for someone like you where you go to a small town and then you have to go back to a big town and you find yourself uh, inept because you don't you hadn't developed the skills as soon as you left home yeah i think uh i think definitely but i think it depends so i think what the campus ends up doing is just creating a vacuum and so what ends up happening is when you leave campus none of that kind of really is useful in terms of taking that experience and applying it somewhere else um this is just an experience that cannot be replicated you i can live in a house with people like this like i'm living right now i'm currently living off campus but it's still not the same 
because you are like you were saying you're responsible for everything you're learning you have to cook you have to worry about your next meal you have to do the dishes you have to go get groceries those are things that in in some way so the first part is that what campus does is it basically takes care of anything that would consume an adult's time so that you're able to put all of your time towards being social academic and extracurricular um and and I- that's almost like you just you know you just move from home to another place where you're more independent um and you have fewer yeah. responsibilities almost because even at home I you remember, have to do chores i remember when i visited you that to me the thing that was most sort of life changing in terms of i was trying to ref- to reflect on what an experience like yours would have meant for me uh the biggest uh sort of thing that hit me was your uh, dining hall and the whole mess kind of setup that you had that's <laughs> yeah. a huge life changing thing i mean of course you have to still uh you know because that means not only do you not have to do groceries but you can not choose to cook i or clean at all like you don't have to do any yeah. of those activities i mean the bigger implication i'm realizing now is that you're also not really thinking about what you're eating where your food is coming from things that are really really important yeah and it could actually backfire because imagine you suddenly go into big city and what happens then is you just replace all of the things that you were saying right academic social and extracurricular with work and mm-hmm. um you just then substitute oh, yeah. the food thing with uh you know buying food directly from you know the microwaveables or uh you just getting yeah. takeout all the time and like you're saying that could lead to poor eating habits yeah i and i th- i think it i mean i owe a lot to our upbringing a lot to our mother um and kind of her focus on our nutrition and just not even our nutritional education even it wasn't like she would just put food on a plate and um send us on our way we sh- we've been taught to understand why it's important to eat what we eat and what cons- constitutes kind of an important full diet and that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. i'm able to translate that into my adult life i think if you didn't come from a background like that i have seen i have peers who um have me are making that transition now somewhat prematurely right given the pandemic and everything it's not uh for some people it's not looking very good because they just don't have i think the faculties to necessarily educate themselves about what they need um because a d hall is kind of been a space where it's like okay here is everything you could ever want um and so you don't have to worry about it we'll worry about it for you and even when i went to san francisco i think and i think you're right i think in a lot of ways when you go from a four year residential college into the workforce um that quickly i've seen a lot of student alumni doing a couple of things one is they end up finding other college alumni and living with them um for the comfort you know and the familiarity because it can get very mm-hmm. disorienting to be in an environment where you're not protected at all mm-hmm. um and you keep trying to look for that somebody to relate with and it's it's kind of in in a small way i think it's detrimental because you're relying on nostalgia to get you through um and there's only so much time that you know re- reflecting on your college experience can get you through adult life you know mm-hmm. um you'll very quickly run out of things to talk about um and and you're right i think the other thing is and maybe this is why uh, the american work ethic is what it is um or it is partially why because people just replace all of those things like you were saying with work and the life is very fast i mean 
in america yeah. i i have been consistently surprised with how little effort it can take i'm not saying people take but it can take very little effort for you to get food in your uh, body um all you have to do is drive by a mcdonalds and i've seen a countless times you know professor of mine or someone just show up with fast food or take out food and that kind of stuff and so it's very um i'm i'm also grateful i think on the other hand to be with to be living with a group of friends who do care deeply about um nutrition and health and all that but it can be um it's quite I easy think, to relax yeah. into it because it's so made so convenient for you in at least in the united states if not now more globally as well the whole <clears throat> fast yeah. food and taking out uh food in general I want to return to the question that you had asked in the beginning which was what is the ideal city and I think from the conversation we've had what I can glean maybe is that um the depending on the stage of life you have you might have different cities that you would like to live in say for example if you're a student in college you're someone who's recently yeah. graduated you are an adult who's beginning to uh you know build a family or or you know getting into the latest half of their life or you're getting into really retire you know getting towards retirement and you want to settle in a quieter place or something yeah so perhaps the stage of life also helps define or dictate where you would like to live yeah i agree completely and i mean this is something that uh, i've noticed as well right a lot of my peers once they've come to college their parents have moved um Ah. not just my american peers but my international peers as well and obviously i mean our parents have also had the discussion where they kind of debate because they have also acknowledged that they're entering a stage of life where it's not necessarily sustainable to live in a three bedroom apartment anymore you know for them yeah. um in a big city that's so busy um and that kind of stuff you know moving into a smaller place um with safe costs um maybe in an environment that's more um internally communally social um in a different way because i think the society that we lived in um a lot of the connections were being made because of the children um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff to move into a community that's more kind of intentional about or relates at the level of um the stage of life that they've moved on to i think no i agree completely is that um it changes depending on what stage of life you're in mhm and i think that that is a pretty good uh, conclusion to my end of the discussion great so what's up with you buddy yeah i decided to go for a very and i i think i feel the need to apologize in advance a very heady and complicated uh subject i think i'm <laughs> building it up too much at this point but i'm going to try and take you along with me anyway um so let me start with this question as you did are you familiar with the concept of kitsch no okay so the subject that i basically wanted to discuss with you is kitsch and the ironic enjoyment of what is quote unquote bad art um which is something that i became familiar with not too long ago perhaps only about 2 years or more ago um one of the first introductions and to give you a sense of what i'm trying to talk about was uh, a couple of friends of mine when i was in high school we used to all watch uh, we were anime buffs we used to get into a lot of different kind of anime and it was normally sort of critically acclaimed or you know everybody knows this is great anime but on one occasion mm-hmm. i realized that uh, i mean they were discussing about this anime and they were saying guys 
this anime is just really really bad it's so bad that you have to watch it and watch it the mm. whole way through to see how bad it is so it's kind yeah. of like uh, a horseshoe where things are great objectively speaking obviously which i'll get into and then they get bad and worse and then they get cringy and unbearable to the point that they become good in an ironic way but that's right. the point you're not enjoying it sincerely you're enjoying it with an ironic detachment and that's what kitsch is so i'm just going to give you a brief definition that i pulled out from the the wikipedia page which you know yeah very quickly can i suggest um or kind of ask if the disaster artist is exactly that absolutely in fact i i will get i was go- i have written that down i was going to actually get into my experience of watching the disaster artist for the first time um right. so to preface that i'm going to go into what kitsch is for people who still haven't gotten it so according to wikipedia kitsch is art or other objects that generally speaking appeal to popular rather than high art tastes uh and such objects are sometimes appreciated in a knowingly ironic or humorous way this word was mm-hmm. first applied to artwork with aesthetics that favored what some would consider to be exaggerated sentimentality or melodrama and this concept is also closely related to camp mm. so you might have heard of campy humor or things like yeah, that yeah so so that's what uh, kitsch is and very often it's used as a pejorative term by people who mm. can have sort of self appointed arbiters of taste looking down on things that are considered common or popular or overly sentimental right. to get now mm-hmm. to uh, disaster artist is the movie that was made as a biopic about Tommy Wiseau who directed the movie called The yeah. Room right so the room is actually <laughs> the the first time that i realized that this is happening after the whole anime experience which had frankly left a, a bit of a bad taste in my mouth the way i was what pitched, anime was that i can't even remember the name of the anime it, it, it was just i watched it anyway and i for some reason i watched it the whole way through because my friends convinced me <laughs> that that was a good idea um But yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the room because I'm sure when you watch the disaster artist, the whole the most interesting scene is towards the end of the film where, you know, Tommy Wiseau's character is watching all of these people watch his movie on screen and instead of having the reaction that he expects them to have, they all end up just laughing at it. But mm-hmm. regardless, he's like, "Wait, this is still entertaining to them on some level." it doesn't matter mm-hmm. that they don't interpret it into sincere level of meaning that i intended it they are laughing mm-hmm. at it because of how kitschy or campy it is so yeah. to go to the story of how i was uh, i guess convinced to watch the room um a couple of people were going to watch it when we were in college during my second year and i was pitched like this movie everybody suddenly talking about it they're making a movie that's got oscar nominated about it and the mm-hmm. whole idea is that this movie is really really bad but it's so bad that you're going to find it watchable and enjoyable and funny and what i realized which movie are we talking about now now we're talking about the room not the disaster artist okay okay oh so, so people were deciding to go watch the room yeah so then we had like a group oh, party crazy. to all get together and watch the room together that was the whole oh, deal God. and here the I fun i can't imagine what that was yeah like. and this is the thing right i wa- i was had never watched it before there were people who would watch it multiple times before like over five times before and watching it again because it had a cult following and i guess they were also part of the cult following now whatever point was uh, many most of the viewing and this is why i don't like to watch movies with large groups of people uh was a lot of 
talking at the screen and discussing what is happening and commenting on how bad of what was going on and you know moaning sounds and you know sort of cringe reactions laughter etc and i you know i sort of played along with a lot of it but mostly what i felt when i was watching the movie was this is just bad i was not able mm-hmm. to relate to that irony uh, that ironic detachment that they had with the movie because when i watched this movie uh. i just saw it as i'm being tortured by being made to watch a horrible movie yeah you yeah. know um but what i'm more interested in is the premise that kitch as an object is based on so to me the premise is that there is good and bad art and that you can judge art with some objective criteria and mm-hmm. that you can recognize something as being good or bad and that the people who recognize it are those who are you know the arbiters of taste and mm-hmm. and they can then decide what is precisely what kitsch is supposed to be what is kitschy and what is campy and uh, a recognition of that would be that art is sub- an alternate perspective i guess of looking at it which i think some people debate right about art is is this whole perspective even right is the premise of objective criteria even okay because to me if you were to think of art as subjective instead of objective then the whole concept yeah. of kitsch would just fall apart because then there's no good and there's no bad and then you right. just abandon these definitions and arbiters of taste um mm-hmm. because at some level it's also possible that kitsch is just sort of a le- a mode of condescension for people who have exactly because i feel like yeah there i mean it's even beyond that simple objective or like collective decision making of this is good mm-hmm. this is bad it goes a level beyond that right because then it says because these things are good and because these things are bad there's this thing in the middle that's good because it's so bad uh, exactly and and so i don't know it becomes a way for people who are i guess bourgeois high art people objectivists you can call them to look down and only and for them the only lens through which they can admire these other pieces of art is by saying oh we can reach a common uh, man and a popular perspective when we detach ourselves ironically from it right and, and that to me was just a fascinating thing to think about so don't you think so there might be it might be a way to excuse themselves for watching something that's popular that is actually a very very uh insane hypothesis that i had not even <laughs> thought of that's almost devious it's to say that these people are so perverted that they wouldn't even admit to themselves that they like what they're watching but would lie to other people to say that i have an ironic detachment from what i'm watching yeah that's insane that's actually a very good question um and i'm going to be I mean, frank with you i mean that's kind of where this kind of thing comes in right mm-hmm. it's like guilty pleasure it's where like at least i think 4 or 5 years ago to listen to justin bieber was kitschy correct um and if it wasn't then there was something that was wrong with you socially mm-hmm. right um but now i mean i can i can at least me i can say that i like justin bieber's latest mm-hmm. music mm-hmm. um and i don't like it ironically right um this I, is I like this is say, when you say you like it unironically and I, i this is such a weird thing that i remember when i was first exploring music online i remember seeing there were like these pages or people would say this specific state statement as if to assert themselves as being uh higher than other people in some way which is that uh the statements is thus okay uh, i listen to death grips and i like it unironically that's what people used to say right right uh and to me that's weird it's not 
so death grips can be appreciated uh, ironically as well as unironically but mm. unironically it's just it's it's very aggressive music and it's very hard to understand it's not that it's bad it's just this it's really really complicated so that to me was an example of something that is not kitschy but has an uh, uh, an assertion of irony often towards it uh it's something that's so outside the mainstream that the people who want to say that they're aligned with the avant-garde have to assert right. themselves as being unironically liking it and that might be part mm-hmm. of the whole Justin Bieber thing which is people are reasserting what they think uh pop music is and to say you know what no popular music is not bad popular music is itself somehow avant-garde right <laughs> i mean there's there's one more level i think to this that i want to kind of investigate which Go is on. which is humor right the ro- role of humor and yes. I- inherently you know there are two kinds of humor and this is essentially going back to the same thing is that self aware humor is considered smart humor um but slapstick charlie chaplin kind of stuff i mean it's a question of how aware you were that you were constructing it right if i make something that i know is a meme it's basically how aware is the creator it did tommy wiseau know that people were laughing at the movie and not precisely with it? You wow know? i'm actually this is this is going to tie in very interestingly to what uh i was also this is like my second part but i want you to finish your train of thought yeah so i and where this comes from is that my friend my one of my friend groups with uh, purvi vidush and arzu mm-hmm. um is i mean they my college friends and one of the things that we kind of really bond over and have grown together over is watching or listening to this a couple of these really funny musicians or like these uh there's this guy called Tahir Shah for example um and there's this other guy um there's this Nepali guy i forget his name um but he has a song called Sunday morning love you mm-hmm. um i'll probably remember it later but these songs are just really bad songs but we still sing them ironically and you, know? you find um, it humorous and, yeah and i I wonder and this guy has gone on to like American Idol and auditioned and everything you know and made a fool of himself or X Factor something like that mm-hmm. um and he's done it earnestly which is what makes it it's kind of the punching down humor right that people look down upon right um where it's like the guy did it innocently it's where you tell someone that a joke is funny and tell them to go up on stage and tell it um and then they get their tomatoes thrown at them yeah I I I I I love that you've made this distinctions because I'm not sure whether I would classify the humor in the way that you have but I was rather more interested in the way that you've distinguished between the kinds of irony that exists so there's one kind of irony which is uh in in innate within the piece of art itself so the piece of art is self-referential and uh ironic within itself and we find it funny as an outsider to say wow it's so smart because it's being ironic within itself then the mm-hmm. other thing is where the piece of art is being sincere but the layer of irony is being applied by us the audience because it's kitschy or because it's too far out the mainstream which mm-hmm. is very different because then you know there is irony as part of the greater audience uh, culture and irony within the artistry uh, and creative uh culture i'll i'll give you some examples of this because i want to go into uh the point about what david foster wallace had to say about all of this um 
So I'll give you examples of this. What he called was postmodernism, and he said that the, the categories of postmodernism or the elements of postmodernism that he saw in art were like cynicism, irreverence, um, self-referentiality, which we now very uh, sort of obviously call meta-ness of something, you know, the whole meta element to things. And most importantly, irony. So my first example is Seinfeld. In one of the episodes in Seinfeld, I think it's in the third season, um, the, uh, Seinfeld and George is characters who's basically, George's character is is uh, modeled after uh, Larry, um, the, the co-creator and writer. I can't remember his last name. Okay, now. Larry David. Larry David, exactly, right? So that's, yeah. and they do the thing where um, both of them go to an NBC executive and pitch a show that they want to write. Right? So this is meta yeah, in its yeah, first yeah. level. And then what they tell the NBC executive is, this is what George says, we want to have a show about nothing. The show is about <laughs> nothing. Right? And that became the whole joke that Seinfeld is a show about nothing. And that's about what nothing. a lot of the show is about. A lot of the show is just being ironic and, and funny and, and, and irreverent and, and cynical without actually mm-hmm. making a point about anything. Um, yeah, and this is the problem that David Foster Wallace was talking about. So, for those of you uh, who don't know, David Foster Wallace was a was a writer and he was a, a teacher of literature and stuff um, in the '90s uh, before he tragically committed uh, suicide. I think in 2008, but he was oh. a very very important figure in American literature. Um, and so, mm-hmm. one of the things that he bemoaned was these postmodern tendencies that he was beginning to see, mostly in literature since the late 60s and 70s. But you can actually see even in television shows like Seinfeld and many other shows, like even The Simpsons or whatever, around the same time, which were doing and adding this. You know, take even Deadpool as a character. The whole shtick, if you're familiar yeah. with the comics, is that he's aware that he's a character, and that is so interesting and funny. But what he mm-hmm. said, the problem is that this is just an exercise in trying to uh, erase all meaning. And then that meaningless just leaves a void of desperation in a sense. And, and that's the problem. Wow. And what he said was that we will either eventually or rather we should move back towards sentimentality and real emotions because that's what our society will need. Because an onslaught of meaningless meaninglessness and cynical uh, uh, you know, cynicism and irony will just make the whole culture uh, collapse and become very, very toxic in a way. Yeah, yeah. No, I can, I can completely see that. That and that's such a deep, intense take on this. But that's, in some ways, it also kind of speaks to political phenomena that are happening, right, with the left and the right, and mm-hmm. how you know people, at least people who on the radical left, um, iron, ironically, kind of. Um, appreciate some things, you know, or adopt some things very ironically. Um, what, can you give me an example? For example, Biden. Honestly, mm-hmm. Biden is one of those. You know, it's just like, uh, and, and and on meme culture is, I think, is based on this. I think concept of a kitsch. Oh, it's kind of absolutely. a sound bite of a kitsch, right? Absolutely. And, um, the the more that this happens, you're right. It takes meaning away from a lot of things, and I think. What that means in the real world is that it takes consequences away from things. So you can say a lot of things and get away with them the same way people who appreciate high art get away with watching something that's not great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the consequences are way more severe. Um, yeah. One of the one of the last things, or at least one of the things that was on my mind from based on something that you were saying earlier regarding Seinfeld was that 
I've recently started watching Community and I think there is an episode that exactly addresses at least this concept of kitschiness and it considers a different angle I think um and it's the angle of the viewer it's the angle of the of the people who um are the you know the objective kind mm-hmm. of people who claim that um who are these arbiters that you're talking about right the episode yeah. um is the one where um I think it's uh, Troy Abed Shirley and uh, Chang mm-hmm. um get together to watch movies and they make fun of the movies so they're watching these movies ironically um the four of them and so they're making jokes very naturally about it mm-hmm. um but then uh, they invite the older guy i forget his name Pierce Pierce they invite Pierce uh, or Pierce kind of invites himself to it and then he kind of hires the improv group of the community college to write jokes for the next movie that they're going to watch for it um and it ends up becoming meaningless they don't appreciate his jokes because they're so contrived correct and I, so I remember it's almost that. yeah and so it's almost i think a commentary on the culture of being kitschy because i think it's peers is not one of those people who can distinguish between high art and at least my representation my interpretation is that he's represented as a person who's an outsider so if you don't even understand where the line is between the so called higher art and other art then you're not even part of the culture that can appreciate what is kitschy and what isn't so you won't understand why you would think that disaster artist is just a terrible movie yeah to go back to the point you were making about peers i think that's part of the the argument that i think the older generation of people weren't even exposed to enough of this irony in their culture that they didn't um it it didn't get imbibed into the way that they see the world itself and interact with art uh in that way mm-hmm. and um i think that is the problem right so what happens is you have art that is starting to become very meta and cynical then the audience ends mm-hmm. up adapting that as the new normal and then they apply that to even things that are being sincere and sentimental but i don't think everything is lost because i think one of the things that he was the david foster wallace was trying to say about return to sincerity that's partly what is happening and i think like dan harman is probably one of the people who sort of the savior of uh the postmodern um way of looking at um let's say television and writing as a showrunner uh with both a uh, community as well as rick and morty because in both of those shows he employs the uh, the same tools you know um cynicism self referentiality irony etc but there's always a sentimental way in which most episodes conclude there's always a way in which um the characters come together they learn something about themselves it's not like seinfeld where the characters we have already recognized as being completely fraught with problems and there is no real con- right. conclusion of uh, some kind of yeah. sentimental end the the other example i wanted to give was of the office in the office mm. which i know you've, you've not watched but the characters of jim and pam have completely ironic detachment from the rest of the characters in the office they are sort of the straight mm-hmm. man for the audience to watch the rest of the whole thing play out it's not that they yeah. don't also often get you know uh, subverted in their roles in in the fact that they play the straight man but that that is often the case that they are ironic in their perspective to the rest of the office but the office was such a great show because it it doesn't shy away from the sentimental it doesn't shy away from mm. the emotional and from the flaws of the characters it embraces it and then tries to make everything whole and have meaning which is an important 
part of art in in some sense because mm-hmm. i mean art that's completely meaningless and you know it's it has that high art snob snobberiety uh, what what's the snobbiness i guess snobbishness snobbishness yeah. um uh of detachment will completely lose that uh and that's kind of my i guess conclusion which is that we may probably will we already have begun to return to sen- sincerity and maybe sentimentality while combining it with the older elements that existed uh with you know the postmodern way of looking at the world and perhaps they're not exclusive they they can just be combined in a way that you can still appreciate humor and elements of being oh wow that's so intelligent the way they did that joke or the way they wrote that thing but you can still have mm-hmm. some kind of uh you know closure ending satisfaction with it yeah yeah and i think that's sort of the end of my whole thought about kitchen ironic irony and art and stuff cool this is a fun lovely journey from learning what a kitchen was to kind of really getting into it um so i really enjoyed that yeah i thought i thought it was pretty fun so time to get into the recommendations now yeah um, do you want to go with yours first uh sure um mine was actually just community um this last week i spent a good amount of time uh with the show and i, I know we caught up earlier this week where i um mentioned to you how much i at least what i was going through as i was watching the show but i think you you've already mentioned a lot of what i think makes the show how good it is i love the length of the show but i also love how um they deal with a lot of topics that i think i haven't seen many shows talk about in a sitcom setting um and they also do the thing that i really like to see in a sitcom where they kind of uh, play with different permutations and combinations of characters um and that kind of stuff so yeah i i've finished i think season 1 so i'm really getting into it now and i'm quite enjoying it mm-hmm. that's that's awesome man community is you know one of the the great shows from from the 2000s that really sort of changed the way that you could do sitcoms and and television shows so yeah i'm glad you like it and that you liked it enough to put it in your recommendation for the week uh mine is uh david fincher's film zodiac about the zodiac killer um hmm the reason i know we we've watched it before together i think but i watched it re- i think more recently by myself and it's a pretty long film and it's also about a pretty dark uh, uh subject because it's about the zodiac killer um in mm-hmm. but what was so interesting to me was how gripping the whole story was i don't think i looked away from the screen even for a minute uh the performances are mm-hmm. great the pacing is great and the way the whole story unfolds about this killer over the decades and you can see the obsessiveness of the the detectives and the and the people who are involved in the case and um, by the end you know because the zodiac killer case was never properly resolved even you don't know whether they actually found the guy or not and leaving it sort of open ended in that way was also it's so gripping because even by the end of the movie you're feeling like but i want to know what really happened and then they mm-hmm. tell you this is all that happened it just remained unsolved to this day uh So yeah, I quite like that movie. Uh, you know, it's got like Mark Ruffalo, uh Jake Gyllenhaal and uh Robert Downey Jr is in it as well. So it's it's quite a nice movie. I mm-hmm. I quite like it. It's a thriller and and stuff. So yeah. That's mine. Cool. Awesome. Great. Sounds good. Um let's sign off then. Yeah. Uh thank you for listening and uh we'll see you next week. I think goodbye.